Good morning. As Sam said, my name is Will, and I am one of the co-directors of student ministry here, which means I get the privilege to work with middle schoolers and high schoolers each week. And when I tell people that, you know, when they meet me, they're like, hey, Will, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm, I work with students. And they're like, well, what does that mean? Well, I work with middle school and high school students. They're like, oh, well, you do that voluntarily? Like, you chose that as your job? I'm like, yeah, they're crazy and they're wild, but I absolutely love them. And Impact, a couple weeks ago, and Impact is our Sunday and Wednesday night programming for high schoolers and middle schoolers, we started this conversation with them. And we asked them the question, hey, what is the good life? And the good life defined by a life that satisfies, a life that you can find fulfillment in, a life that is worthy of love and value. And what we did is we said this. We said, if I could give you a piece of paper and you wrote down your life, you were the author of your life and every detail you put down in it would come true. This whole idea of the good life, what would you write down? And so we got out a whiteboard, right, that they had some time to think about it. And we wanted to put it up in front of them and we asked them, okay, what is it that you said? And I actually wanted to bring a whiteboard out here and then do this with you guys. Um, but my wife, Morgan, she used her official veto power, which she's never used before. And so premarital counseling told me, hey, those are advice you should take. So I did that. So I'm just going to tell you exactly what they said. So middle schoolers, so middle schoolers like 11 to 14 said this. This is what a good life looks like in their mind. Good grades, being athletic, popularity, being happy, hanging out with my friends, money, no problems or drama, which I can support. And then one brave sixth grade girl, you know, in a crowd of all of her peers, 30, 40 people, she raised her hand and I called on her and she said this. She said, to not be picked on by people for what you look like, act like, or think like. And then the high schoolers, so anywhere from 14 to 18 years old, said this. They said money, fame, influence of the social media variety, A good life looks like having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a house, a boat, which is very Fort Lauderdale of them. They said cars, plural. They said a good college, a good job that is not just a good job, but a good job that pays a lot. They want promotions in their life. They want success. They want family. They want children, alcohol, drugs, sex, popularity, friendship, travel. And we had all of these things on the board. The good life in their world. Life that they're told, if you chase after this, if you achieve this, if you want this, if you go after it, then it'll be satisfied. Then it'll be loved. Then you will be valuable. And the truth is, students here in Fort Lauderdale have the means to achieve a lot of those things, whether through their own achievements or through that of their parents. So these middle schoolers and high schoolers, they have the Fort Lauderdale good life in middle school and high school, right? which tells them, which promises them that they'll find satisfaction in that, that they'll find value, that their worth will be solidified around those things. And the question we have to ask as we look at Generation Z, this generation in middle school and high school, did those promises come true for them? Did everything that the world promised them, when they grabbed it, when they achieved it, did it do what it said it would? But the hard reality is this. Generation Z is the most anxious, the most lonely, the most depressed generation we have seen 
ever created on this planet. Right? And it's heartbreaking to think about. And I'm not overselling those three things at all. Every statistic we see is showing that over and over and over again. And sure, if you pull a high school out and you ask them that question, they're not going to give you the honest truth. But in the moment, we see that. Because they've been sold the lie that when they get popular, when they gain status, when they finally have influence over their peers, right, that drugs, sex, alcohol, that all of these things, that when they get them, when they achieve them, when they chase after them, then they will be satisfied. The good life will be complete. And they get them, and they have it, and they run with it. And what do they find? That those promises leave them empty. And it's truly heartbreaking to watch. And as I thought about all that, and on my way home, I thought, I was thinking about their boards, and I was thinking about just just what they feel and what they think about, and I had to have a moment of honesty with myself. Because it's easy for me, especially working with them, to be like, oh, that's their issue. You know, they're young, they're going to figure it out, like, they, they just have time, they just need to grow up, we just need to talk to them a little more. But the truth is, my board looks exactly like theirs. It's almost a carbon copy of what they put down, except for the drugs, don't be worried. I just want to be clear, my bosses are in the room. But seriously, it is. And in fact, as an adult, my board's much more complex, and the lies that culture comes to me with are much more insidious, because I know more about life. So think about some of the things you would put on your board. Right? Culture comes to us and says, oh, you definitely need a spouse for the good life. Not just any spouse will do, though. A spouse that was created to complete you. A spouse that is your perfect match. A spouse that can satisfy you in every way. A spouse that looks like this and talks like this and acts like this. And then you will find satisfaction. What about children on that board? Right? Parents are under so much pressure these days. Because the culture comes to you and says, oh, the good life is not just having a child. But it's having a child that's involved in every activity under the sun. Not just that they're involved in it, but that they excel at it. That they're exceptional at it. That they go to school and they're, they're really good academics and they're really smart. And they have really good behavior and they have great friends. And then they go to sports practice and they have to excel on the field. And then they have to have all of these extracurricular activities. Clubs, plays, musical instruments. And it's just this burden that keeps on falling on them. How about work? Right? Jobs are good gifts from God. But our culture comes to us and says, the job you live in, the job you have, it should satisfy you in every way. And what you need to do is you need to work, 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 and you need to climb to the top of the ladder. Because you know what's at the top? Well, that's where you find satisfaction. That's where you find fulfillment. And then you get there. And is it there? And then you think about money. Money would be on all of our boards. And money was on their board a lot. Right? It's the backbone of the good life. It's the life that all of this rests on. So you work hard, and you do it right, and you earn that next dollar. And the world comes to you and like, oh, when, when you get that next dollar, when you get that next hundred dollars, when you get that million dollars, then you will be satisfied. But then you achieve it, and every dollar just leaves you wanting more. And just like the students, we have the ability in a lot of ways to achieve what's on our boards. We have the ability to get this good life that culture comes to us and says, this will satisfy, I promise. And we get there. And maybe at night, 
<laughs> Maybe when you're alone in the shower or driving by yourself, you get that little inkling in your heart, that little bit of dissatisfaction, that little bit of, I am not fulfilled. And you look back and you ask yourself, is there more to life than this? All of this on our boards, all of this that we can see, touch, feel, all of this that we can achieve and earn. And the beautiful part about that question is that I can honestly say yes to you. That there is something far greater than the good life. And C.S. Lewis describes the problem of humanity this way. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so this morning as a group and as individuals, we're going to be invited into something greater than the good life, something far more fulfilling, something that can actually satisfy us. So we pick up our Desiring the Kingdom series in 1 Kings 19, 19, which says this. So Elijah departed from there. And we have to remember where Elijah has been, this character that we have been following, this prophet of the Lord. Right? He was called by God, and a couple chapters ago, he had this great battle against the prophets of Baal, and he crushes them. Right? And the expectation is that, oh, things in his life are going to change. But guess what? They don't. He's still on the run from a king and a queen who wants to kill him. He's despondent. He's depressed and he's sitting under a broom tree. But we saw the Lord met with him. We saw the Lord cared for him. We saw the Lord gave him a new mission, a new purpose, and a renewed interest in that. And Elijah set off. And it says this. And he, being Elijah, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Okay, not a typo there. we got to be clear today. We have Elijah, the prophet we've been following this whole time, and he's going to call his successor, his apprentice, Elisha. I'm going to do my best to articulate that very well, but you got to keep up with me. Elijah and Elisha. So what we see in this is a lot more than this verse lays out, so we kind of have to unpack it. So we have to look at who Elisha is. Because Elijah is calling him, and he's going to call him away from this life that he has now and call him to something different. So when we meet Elisha, he lives in Abel Mehola, which is located just west of the Jordan River in a valley. And the name of that literally means dancing meadow. I mean, what a beautiful place to live. You're right by a river, you're in a valley, and it would have been fertile, and it would have been lush. It would have been the prime location for an ancient Israeli in an agrarian society. Right, so he had the perfect plot of land. What we also see is Elijah has at least 24 oxen, which was a huge deal. An ox, the animal, was the single greatest tool they had back in that society. It was the beast of burden. It was the beast that could work and till and plow the fields so that their economy could flourish. Right? It was absolutely necessary. Right? And a pair of oxen would have been like today's tractor. So Elijah doesn't just have one tractor, right? He has 12. He kind of has a booming agricultural business going on here. Elisha Farms would have been great to get into at the bottom because he has something going on. He has a good life. And we also see that he's behind the 12th pair of oxen, right? He's guiding them. He's watching them. So the question is, who's with the other 11, right? At least it's hired workers, which would have been awesome, but it's most likely servants, 
So we come to Elisha and we come to his life. And we ask this, is Elisha living a good life? He has the perfect plot of land. He has a booming business, right? He has servants and workers, right? He's wealthy. He has the tools to continue to blossom that business. He has it. He has the good life. And you can imagine Elisha out there plowing the fields with his oxen every day behind the 12th one. And he can kind of survey his land at the back. And you can just think about him. And he's saying, well, I'll do this for a couple more decades, right? I'll plow, I'll till, I'll work extremely hard. Maybe I'll build the business a little bigger, right? I'll get some more oxen, I'll acquire some more land. And then one day when I'm tired, when I'm done, I'm going to pass it off to my son and he's going to have a great business for himself. And then I'm going to live the sunset years in retirement. Maybe I'll start to travel a little bit. I'll go to Jerusalem. I never get to the capital city. Maybe I'll take a cruise on the Sea of Galilee because I've never done that before. But I'm going to have a lot of fun in these final years. I'll enjoy myself. And then one day, I'll die. I'll die. I won't get to take any of this with me. Everything that I worked for, everything that I built, doesn't get to come with me. Not just that, but almost likely, besides maybe my son and maybe his kids, I'll be forgotten in a generation, maybe two generations, maybe three generations, if I'm absolutely astounding. And I don't know this, but you can imagine Elisha standing there. And the same question that comes to you and I oftentimes came to him. Is there more to life than this? This picture of the ancient Israeli good life. Is there more to life than this? But Elijah, our current prophet, enters into Elijah's life with an invitation. Not just to continue this good thing that he has going, but to invite him into something far greater than he even realizes. And the verse says this, Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So you can imagine Elijah, he doesn't even stop, he just tosses his cloak. Right? And the cloak was the symbol, it was the visible sign of his vocation. Right? Elijah was a prophet, and he's throwing the prophet's mantle onto Elisha. And we have to think, when he tosses the cloak, what is he saying to him? He's saying, I'm inviting you into the life that I have. He's saying this life where I get to be the hands and feet of God, the eyes of God on this earth, where I get to speak for God on behalf of the people. And what has Elijah done so far? He's raised a child from the dead. Right? He's been fed miraculously by the people. He's won this amazing showdown with the prophets of Baal. He's heard the intimate voice of Jesus or God on top of Mount Sinai. Right? Amazing things. But what have we seen the other half of Elijah's life looks like? Well, he's a man that's been on the run for years and years with an evil king and queen that's hoping to get to chop his head off here soon. Right? He's lonely, as Sam said. He's been fed not by some beautiful, lush river valley, but he's made his sustenance on the handouts of widows and ravens that fly to him. Right? So the call that Elijah gives to Elisha is, come follow me, a life of surrender and sacrifice. Elisha is being called from a good life of luxury to one of poverty and danger. And how does Elijah respond to this huge invitation that absolutely would disrupt your life? Verse 20 says, And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, 
Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? I mean, Elijah doesn't really even say a word in all of this until the end. He tosses it, and actually he just keeps walking. Elijah has to catch up to him. right? It's a very bold move by Elijah that he would accept this. But Elijah does absolutely that. He makes the instantaneous decision to say yes to whatever Elijah has for him. Right? Elijah gives no details. He gives no 10-year plan, no 5-year plan. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen. He's just telling him, hey, I'm inviting you into this life. And Elijah walks away from the plow right then. And he says, hey, at least let me go and kiss my mother and father because I kind of realize who you are, Elijah. I kind of realize I'm probably not making it back to the farm for Christmas. Right? This will be the last time I most likely get to see my parents. It's a huge ask. And you can imagine like any parent would when your son Elijah comes up to you like, hey, Elijah just stopped by and I think I'm going to follow him. I think I'm going to hit the road with him in prophetic ministry. And you as a parent's like, I haven't heard much about him, but the word on the street is he's being hunted to be killed. Right? He turned off our water for a lot of years. Aren't you mad about that? Like you're going to go with this guy whose life most likely pretty quickly is going to end in death. And even his parents can't talk him out of it. And Elijah's confusing Hebrew figure of speech at the end there of go back again for what have I done to you? It pretty means, hey, I'm not stopping you. Go back and see your parents, but just remember what I said to you and come back. And Elijah does exactly that. He chases after Elijah. But he does one extra step. Right? It's enough to leave the plow. It's enough to leave the oxen. It's enough to leave the farm exactly how it is. To leave the good life right up in this little picture perfect basket that if he goes and follows Elijah and everything falls apart, well, he's just going to come right back to the farm and keep on living the life that he had. But Elisha makes it clear that there's no plan B as soon as he leaves to work with Elijah. Verse 21 says, And Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. In no clear way, Elijah is saying, hey, I'm giving all of this up. Right? I'm going to follow Elijah. I'm going to surrender all of my future, all of my dreams, every prospect that I have. I'm going to sacrifice the old life. Right? He kills the greatest single tool that they had back then. He slaughters all of the oxen and he uses that to feed the people, which is awesome. But he doesn't just stop there. Even the plows, they're done for him. He doesn't want to go back. He's saying, no longer is this life going to be good enough for me. I want whatever Elijah is inviting me to. And it ends with, then he rose, Elisha, and went after Elijah and assisted him. No longer is Elijah the CEO and president of this booming farming business. No longer is he the top dog. No longer is he in charge. But he's called to be an assistant. He relinquishes the power and the prestige that came with being a boss and instantly becomes a follower. Elijah's call is to follow, to surrender, and to sacrifice. Following means that you're not in charge, that there's a leader and you are not him. That you are not in control. That you go wherever you are led. Surrender means laying everything down. Every hope you have, every dream, every picture you have of your future, whatever tomorrow brings, you're surrendering to the person that you were following. 
and sacrificing. It means giving up everything, physical, emotional, mental, whatever stops you from surrendering and following your leader, you're laying that aside. And that's the call of Elisha. And it's easy to say, well, not in ancient Israel. There's not an official prophet that's running around these days. No one's thrown a cloak on me, right, which would be weird. But this is not just the call of Elisha. Right? This is not just the call of the vocational Christian. This is not just the call of the top of the top of the top. But Jesus comes to us in Mark with a clear passage that says, this calling is for all Christians. And he says this in Mark 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So think about this. Jesus, he sees his disciples, and he's not just, hey, disciples, come here. I got a really specific word for you. He says all of the random people in the crowd who are here to hear Jesus speak and to learn from, he calls the whole crowd, all of the normal people following him to himself, and he says this message. He says a message of denial. He says to deny yourself and think. He doesn't say, hey, deny evil, deny sin, deny money, deny sex outside of marriage. No, he... He goes deeper than that. He knows the real heart of humanity. He says you need to deny yourself. And in our sinful nature, that goes against everything that we have. Because who's king of the throne in our hearts? It's us. We're in charge. It's all about us. Every decision gets filtered through, hey, how is this going to impact me? Well, if I give this way, what do I do? And if I spend this much time here, what happens to my life? Jesus knew at the heart of it, we need to deny ourselves. That this life is not yours anymore as you seek to follow Jesus. And then he goes on to something crazy. And he says to take up your cross. Remember, this is pre-Jesus dying on the cross. right? We look at the cross and we see it as a symbol of beauty. We see it as a symbol of the battle that Jesus won that day at Calvary. But what do these people know about the cross? Well, these people have only seen murderers, thieves, evil people hung up on a cross. That the cross is a tool, an instrument of torture in order to take an evil person's life away from them. They would have been horrified. Like, what, Jesus, take up a cross? The thing I see outside the gates that that guy who just murdered someone hangs on? That's what you want me to do? And this is a serious call. Right, the people would understood. As Jesus is calling us to this today, right, there's no half-hearted following of this call. You can't just say, well, Jesus, I like the first part and the last part. Yeah, I really like the come after me and follow me, but those two in the middle, oof. Like, I'm not really into denying myself, and I'm definitely not into taking up the thing that is meant to kill me. And Jesus understands the difficulty of this call, so, so he explains why in the following verses. He says this in verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life. So whoever wants to make this little kingdom his own, who wants to spend the next 85 years building up their money, their wealth, their resources, whoever wants to use their time to make sure this life is perfect, so whoever wants to save the life they currently have, what's going to happen to them? He clearly says they will lose it. And when we hear that, it, it makes logical sense as we bake it out. right? Because we know in the end that everything we acquire on this earth Right, and one way or another is going to leave us. Right, we're going to leave. It's we're going to lose it while we still have breath on this earth, or as they close our casket lid, it's gone from us. It's not here anymore. 
But Jesus says, which is one of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And this is why Jesus comes to us and says, hey, deny yourself. Because I have a better option. I have a greater plan for your life. If you will sacrifice all of those things, you will push all those things away that aren't going to give you satisfaction, that aren't going to fulfill you. And instead, you use those good gifts that I've given you for my purpose, to build up my name as Jesus and for my kingdom and for the gospel to go into your workplaces, into your schools, into your homes. Those things that have an eternal impact that that death cannot take away then you will save your life, right? Every minute, every dollar, every ounce of sweat that you shed in order for more people to know Jesus, that is what is going to matter in the end. And he ends with this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And this is the call. This is actually the invitation that Jesus comes to each and every one of us today. It's a call to follow Jesus in a life of surrender and sacrifice. And we're sitting here this morning, right, as I read that, and I spent a lot of time in that this week. I thought, man, who's Jesus to claim my life like this? Right, who is this guy that came onto the earth? Right? Who is he to ask for everything that I have? Every part of me. How can he ask for this much? Well, the truth is that this Jesus did exactly that for us. Right? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who all things were created for and through, he left heaven and he came to earth. Why? He was following the will of his Father. Because he saw sinful, broken people that could not save themselves. And the father graciously said to his son, go and do what they could not do. And he surrenders. He surrenders everything that heaven has to offer. And he takes on a body. He takes on flesh. He takes on blood. And he takes on everything that comes with being human. And he lives the life that we could not live. Right? He's perfect in every way. He's perfect in every moment. His love never wavers. His faith never dies. And this perfect, innocent son of God who took on flesh, he's betrayed by one of his friends. Right? And he's taken and he withstands an unfair trial and he's beaten to the point that you can't even recognize who he is. And he literally takes up his own cross, not a metaphoric one like we all have, but a literal tree that he is going to hang on. And he sacrifices his life. And what's he thinking about on that cross? Right on that cross, as the Son of God dies, right, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's the perfect sacrificial lamb for everything that we're not. That Jesus Christ followed the will of the Father. He surrendered his whole life. And in the end, he sacrificed his life even to death. That's the God who has claim on our life because he already did what he's asking of us in a much grander way. And it's life that's much better than the good life. It's life that says... You don't work in order to be loved, that you're loved, and now you can work on this earth. 
It's a life that comes to us and says, hey, I'm not just claiming your obedience like a tyrant, but I come to you with my life, and now you obey me out of that love. Right, A life that following him gives us that satisfaction, that gives us that ultimate purpose, that gives us that meaning, that every day when we wake up, we're not striving and trying to earn our worth and value, but a Savior who loves us gives that to us freely. And the truth is, I don't know what, how this works out in each of your lives. Right, because it's not like Elijah and prophetic ministry, but your parents, your husbands, your wives, your co-workers, right, your fathers, your mothers. In every aspect of life, Jesus is calling us to follow, to surrender, and to sacrifice. And that's what he asks us, and that is where the good life is truly found. So just two questions to end. Are you following Jesus? Following in, following him in this way? You don't just like Jesus, you don't just think he was a good teacher, a good prophet, but that you're willing to surrender and sacrifice everything in order to follow him. And lastly, what if what Jesus said in that passage was true? What if the only way to find your life is to lose it? What do you need to lose in your life today? What's holding you back from that surrender, sacrifice of following Jesus? Hey, as always, at the end of the service, um, I'll be down here, Tom, Mason, Sam. Um, if you want to pray with someone, if you have any questions, um, we would love to talk to you after this. So I want to pray for us. Our Father and our God, we come to you, Lord. Just as sinful people are easily distracted by what we can see, what we can feel, what we can hoard, what we can touch. Lord, there's so many things vying for our attention. There's so many things vying for our love, for our worship, for our students. God, it's even greater. So, Lord, I just ask for your spirit to fall in this place. I just ask for clarity for these people, Lord, for myself, Lord, to, to see the joy of what you were calling us to, to see that you're the God who loves us and cares for us enough to die for us. So, Lord, we just ask that you would meet with us in this place. Lord, we just ask that we'd feel your love, that we'd feel your peace, and that you would break through um, wherever we need you today, Lord. I just thank you for who you are in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.